Does your bank support your business while also standing up for the things that matter most to you? If the answer is no, maybe it's time to join an ethical bank. At The Cooperative Bank, we spent 30 years campaigning on issues like climate change and social injustice. And we also offer 30 months free everyday business banking with our Business Direct Plus current account. Join us for business banking. New customers maintaining a credit balance of £1,000. Monthly limits for cash and cheque transactions. Charges may apply for other services. Visit website for details. Subject to status, eligibility and T's and C's. So I'm about two thirds through. Young offender. And if you watch this video through to the end, there's going to be a giveaway at the end. We've got five copies. If you want to buy it, in the description box below this video are going to be all of Michael's links. And this is a really dark story, some some brutal parts of this. Um, just like to thank Michael for coming thank you, on. Mate. Thanks for having me yeah. on. Yeah, privilege. So, what part of London did you grow up in then? Grew up in Isleworth, so sort of just outside Central. It's like Greater London, um, close to Richmond and Twickenham. For anyone who doesn't know Isleworth, so not too far from here. Sorry. Yeah, not too yeah. far from Guildford. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, and was that a easy growing up for you or was there difficulties yeah so it was tough because before the age of one my 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 mum and dad had broken up before I turned one my dad was violent towards my mum so my mum was like we was on the run from my dad all the time like even when my mum was pregnant with me we'd moved to three different bail hostels and then ended up in a council estate on Ivory Bridge Estate which is in Isleworth. And um, although it was like this community that didn't have much, there was like this mad community spirit there as well. You know, we was all broke. Everyone was battling demons. You know, a lot of the fathers weren't around. So it was hard, but there was also a community spirit. I think the most difficult thing was growing up so close to Richmond and Twickenham. So like if you've, you've a lot of people who know Twickenham, you've got a rugby stadium there, right? So occasionally when rugby matches were on, you get a load of rich people rock up right next to your house. If you've ever been to Twickenham, you see them big tower blocks. That's where we lived. So we had neighbours above us, below us, either side of us. And then you get these rich people turning up, which as a kid just seemed like they had so much compared to what we had. And it created this divide, this alienation from us, me. I can only speak for myself, but definitely for me and them. You know, especially even more so when I got to like 10, 11 and I started going into Richmond and I looked at these houses, I looked at these cars, I look, even looked at in M&S at food that we could never afford. And I was just like resentful, really, because like not only did they have stuff that I could never afford, in my judgment, they'd never experienced stuff that I'd ever experienced. I'd experienced more at the age of 10, 11 that I, I felt they had experienced. Before we get to that, yeah. man. I don't, sure. I don't usually get into the history of the parents and stuff. Yeah, sure. I was so moved by your, the story of your mum. Can you just give us the story of your mum yeah. before we proceed? Yeah, so my mum come from a traveller family, the Mohans, um, massive traveller family, all like, massive in the UK and over in Ireland. And she was born in a caravan at the side of the road. and um, That was in Ireland, was That it? was in Ireland, yeah. And um, there was about, I think it was about 15 or 16 brothers and sisters. And uh, it was just a, the traveller's life from different camp to camp, earning money as and when you can. And then um, when they came to Dublin, they um, 
came into contact with social services and the social services basically looked at what was going on there with um with my mum's dad Tommy Mohan and um yeah there was there was just you know violence towards the kids and uh, they said right we're taking every kid under the age of 16 into off you and into care and so my mum went in with her two sisters and three brothers there was older siblings who got to stay with them but anyone under 16 went into Nazareth House, which is basically a children's home in Belfast, run by the nuns and the priests. I've watched a few of those documentaries about the nuns. Yeah, yeah, it was it was, it was, was brutal. You know, the stuff that happened just wasn't okay. You know, like, they would allow volunteers into the home. They'd say, we need help, volunteers to teach your kids a piano or, or help with the gardening when really these were all like paedophiles in disguise mm. who just come in and and just do stuff with the kids, mm. you know? Yeah, it was brutal. But anyway, my mum left that children's home when she was um, 16 and she left and then her parents were waiting at the gate to have a pre... They had organised a pre-arranged wedding, which was a common thing in the traveller community back then to settle debts and feuds and stuff like that. And um, and my mum just avoided them for long enough. She, you know, got back to the home, got some money and literally got on a ferry to London with nothing. She just, just, had, the, woman. just had the clothes on her back, mate. And she, she had this vision in her head, oh, I'm going to get to London, I'll be safe. And she went to, the, there were the signs on the doors saying no blacks, no Irish, no, do- no dogs, no blacks, no Irish. And she was like really confused at like, she thought I'm going to be safe here. <laughs> and it was like... I really admire her though. You know, when I think about her, all that going through at 16, I'm like, what a legend. Yeah. You know, and, um, but she made it through. She worked in hotels and pubs and she, she was like a waitress, uh, a barmaid in the cabbage patch in Twickenham. And that's where she, she worked there for quite a long time. She also done cleaning work. She was a cleaner for Seb Co, uh, Sebastian Co, the, the great athlete. Um, I think he's Sir Sebastian Co now. Um, and yeah, so she got by and then she met my dad. And what was the circumstances they met? I think it was just like in the pub. You yeah. know, he was a young, good looking guy and she was like a very beautiful young Irish woman in need of sort of some protection because she'd always been on the run all her life, really. And uh, and my dad was that, you know what I mean? But on the flip side of that, he was also quite unpredictable had drink and drug problems himself and was violent towards her. So neither of them were equipped with the tools on how to be in a relationship or how to be a parent. You know, they've both, they both had really like dysfunctional upbringings really. And was he violent towards you? He wasn't. Well, like he left before I was one. Okay. You know? Yeah. So like I have a real vague, vague memory like, and that's it. It's, yeah. it's like, you know, I don't have anything else. So what was the early signs of crime? So the first, I think the first crime that I got involved in was in Richmond. And it was sort of like to even the score up a little bit, you know, and I was like... Robin Hood. <laughs> well, it was just, I'm not proud of this stuff. Yeah. Right. And I'm not glamorizing crime. Mm-hmm. But for a kid who grew up with like nothing... I had no control over nothing. No control when my uncle Tommy would come in my room and abuse me at night. I didn't even have power over that. And just, just let's stop there a second. Then, so who, who was this Uncle Tommy character, and how did that come about? So, 
when my mum left the children's home, she went to London, she got a job, she worked, she met my dad, she got a council flat. At the set, while all this was going on, her siblings were getting older in the children's home. So when they got to 16, they all wanted to get get out of Belfast too. And so they came over and visited. So my auntie Kathy, my auntie Bridget, my uncle Franco, and the youngest, my uncle Tommy. And so sort of my mum, although she experienced a lot of the trauma from the childhood, the abuse and all of that, um, she'd had sort of 10, 11 years prior to that of some normality in the, in the gypsy life, you know? So she was able to realise what was going on was, wasn't wrong. But my uncle Tommy, however, being the youngest, he was like, I think he was like one or two years old when he went in there. And he was like just relentlessly abused every day by priests and paedophiles. They're like, it's all he knew. That's all he knew, you know, <sighs> as a kid. And he basically, he, he, he left the home and he needed, he needed help. And, you know, mum wasn't going to turn him away. And so he came and he lived with us. Um, and, you know, it's sad because he never knew any different. And I had to forgive him for what he'd done to me. But all the abuse he experienced, he'd done to me. Yeah. Um, and I hated for years, years, I hated, hated. And in the end, I had to forgive him. I had to see his innocence that, you know, he was a baby. And that's all he knew. Doesn't make it right what he'd done. But me carrying around that hate wasn't productive for anyone. But yeah, he, he, he abused me. And then I think the guilt got too much for him and he just disappeared one day. And then he went back to Ireland and he abused a whole load of other kids. And then one of the kids testified. And um, within two weeks of that kid testifying in Northern Ireland, he was uh, he was murdered on the streets wow. of Belfast. Yeah. yeah, that's sort of over in Belfast, I think, with the paramilitaries. That's, they don't stand for that sort of stuff, you know? Oh, yeah, yeah. So, all right, so you said, you mentioned then, you're seeing this, like, wealthy neighbourhood and these wealthy people coming in watching the rugby games and stuff. Yeah. That's, like, getting you tempted to do stuff. And what were your first crimes that you committed? So, first one, I think, was shoplifting, I think, in uh, Marks and Spencer's in Richmond. <laughs> I think I was just, like, you know... I'm going, I'm getting some of this food. <laughs> I know it sounds crazy. I think I, was, I think I was like 12 or something. Any idea what that food was? Mate, I can't even remember. <laughs> it probably would have been just like, you know, the sandwiches and stuff like yeah. that. I can't even remember. It all looked amazing, the food. Yeah. You know, like, <laughs> so I was like, I'm getting some, you know, I'm even in the, squ the playing field up a bit. And I was just terrible. I got caught like straight away. You know, but you didn't have a technique. I did. Well, there was there was a technique not to get caught, but I was also a scruffy young kid from the council estate, so I didn't fit in in Richmond. I definitely didn't fit in in Marks and Spencers in Richmond. <laughs> so, <laughs> so you know, like when I'm sort of floating around, it was it was probably they probably thought, yeah, we can see what this kid's up to. He's not yeah. to no good, you know. So yeah. Got got arrested for that, and then um, could they press charges on that because you were young? I think that was pressed. it because I was so young. I got a caution. Mm -hmm. I think it was just like a slap on the wrist. And um, anyone who's been to Richmond, I mean, the police station isn't there anymore. But the police station used to be out the back exit to to Marks and Spencers, mm. and that was one of the things where 
they they called the police and this they the police took me through almost like the high street of Richmond <laughs> thinking like um I just think they thought this would teach me a lesson I'd be really embarrassed by it and in fact it done the opposite it I felt proud that like I was like yeah see this ain't such a pretty little neighborhood now is it <laughs> look you know I'm getting dragged through and I'm like effing and blinding and I was just an angry young man I was just so angry. I was like, I made a decision really young. I was like, this world isn't a friendly place. And if I'm going to survive through this life, I need to create someone who's tough and scary and mean. Because if the people who you're meant to love, who you live with, do this to you, then what is everyone out in the world going to do to you? So it was the abuse that made you think that the world is not a friendly place? That was like the final straw. Okay. Yeah, so dad left. There was violence between dad and mum. Um, there was in the a couple of scenes that were neglect. You know, I caught, I I pl was playing with a tin opener as a boy, and I was naked, little boy, and wrapped it in my testicles. That was oh. a yeah, that was oh. another thing. Yeah, yeah. And how did that pan out then? Oh, mate, it was just I woke up one morning and yeah, woke up one morning. Everyone was asleep. They'd been drinking the night before. Went into the kitchen and I didn't have a nappy on. And I just, as a young kid, saw this tin open. I didn't know what it was and just started playing with it, just fascinated. And I was so engrossed in playing with it. I just like didn't even realise that I was twisting and twisting and twisting and it was my testicles. And, um, and yeah, it was like um, I blacked out after that. I blacked out, yeah. Yeah. So there was that moment. There was that moment, which, you know, was tough. And then Uncle Tommy arrived. And one of the ways Tommy used to silence me and intimidate me, and I never knew if he knew what happened to my testicles, but I suspect he did. But he would grab me by my testicles, mm. you know. And um, mm. it was, um, yeah, it was just... Fucking hell. It's just, it's just horrible. It was horrible. So how did it escalate from shoplifting to more stuff? Yeah, it was just, um, you know, I grew up on on a council estate. All the elder kids were, you know, hustling, selling drugs, doing all this sorts of stuff. And um, I'd do like little bits of theft here and there, you know, like Rob, you know, I'd go to like an off license and if it was a, an old person or a person who was overweight that I could outrun, I'd just grab stuff and run. And um, it's terrible, but that was just my mindset. I just look and think I could outrun you, so I'm just I just walk <laughs> in and I just go grab loads of stuff and I just run. It's terrible, but I remember I what we watched a film called Menace to Society. You ever seen that film? It's an American film. American gangster. I might film. have seen some of that. Yeah. yeah. And we watched this film. And it was there was a scene in it where the young kid who's who, young black kid who's got dreadlocks, he's in a shop and the shopkeeper says something to him and he just pulls a gun out and shoots a guy straight in the head. And um and I'm watching this, I think I was about I don't know, thirteen, fourteen at the time. And I'm watching this and I'm like, Wow, I need to get a fucking gun. <laughs> I'm like, I need to get myself a gun, man. Just it, it was just like the power he had with his gun. And any time yeah. he got it out, everyone stopped, no one. And it was like, 
I need to get a gun. I need to get a gun. And I remember saying to one of the elder kids in the community, I need to get a gun. And they just laughed at me. They were like, <laughs> mate, we we don't live in LA, mate. We live in Isleworth. <laughs> you know, and it was like, I was like, man, because obviously I watched it on the film. But I thought it must be easy to get these things, right? And so I was quite disappointed when I heard that. <laughs> I couldn't get a real gun. And um, and so I just, you know, started um, started keeping my eye out to try and get an imitation firearm. And then I got one, which is basically a lighter gun. And I was, it looked, it was like a replica gun. It was the same shape, weight, everything. And I was like, this will do. This will do me now. And, you know, I just, then it progressed to so all sorts of stuff. So did you start doing heists with guns? Yeah, armed robberies, yeah. Armed robberies. Is that yeah. on like shopkeepers, banks? What was the... Just shops. Shops. Just shops, yeah. And did any of those shopkeepers retaliate or did they just back down and hand things over? Yeah, I mean, well, in the book, it talks about, um, you know, the one that was close to my house. And yeah, it was like, there was a moment when the shopkeeper, was a, she was an old Indian lady, just started screaming. And I was like, open the effing till. And, I, and she was just screaming just terror just completely terrified and it was like this moment of like shit do i do is this where i should start beating her up now with this gun or or what do i do and it was like i knew i, I didn't have that in me i knew i wasn't that type of person that would beat some, a, a woman up having seen similar violence growing up and i was like just ran out of the shop and uh just as i came out i um i pulled the balaclava up because i didn't want to be seen walking down the road with a balaclava and the camera was facing the door. So it saw the back of my head pulling the balaclava up. And the paper boy comes speeding along and done a skid on his bike right in front of the shop. Went, like in front. So the camera is watching all this. It's watched me pull it up and his camera skid and his bike skid, sorry. And I knew the paper boy. And, the pa and so the police just, you know, nicked him and just put pressure on him. You better tell us who it is or you're going to, you know. And in the end, he cracked and he said, it's Michael Maisie and... You know, that was it. So that was your first major arrest? First major arrest, yeah. How old are you now? 37. How old are you then, sorry? Oh, then? Yeah. Um, I was 15. You were 15. 15. So where is the first place they take you, the police? So straight to the police station. Well, they, they when they caught me, because they obviously were, you know, putting pressure on him. So it took them a while to get it together. And then... um. And then, yeah, they come and nicked me at my house um, early in the morning. They, I think in their mind, you know, prior to figuring out who I was, probably had this idea of I'd be this big criminal, career criminal. But I was just like a 15-year-old white kid. And, um, yeah, they come in flying squad with assault rifles. And, um, yeah, I was just, I was asleep. And I felt this thing po prodding my head. And I was like... And then I opened one eye and they was like, get out of bed really slowly. Do not make any sudden movements. And I was like, fuck. It suddenly got really real. Mm. And I was just like, got up in my pants and where's the gun? Where's the gun? I was like, it's there. And, you know, and, and then that was it. I was sort of rough housed a bit into the wagon and taken away. Yeah. Yeah, that was like I was like, wow, this is real now. Um, 
so yeah and they and and you know they they had a chat with me they sent actually they it, it wasn't them they sent the chief of that station down to my cell because they said look we've got a 15 year old armed robber here it's his first offense we should probably have a chat with him and the, and the and the guy came down and said look mate i'm having a chat with you i was like you're gonna end up doing life it's like if you carry on at this rate it's your first offense you're either gonna end up killing someone someone's gonna kill you or you're gonna end up doing life and i wish at that moment that would have scared me but i felt proud it's mad i felt proud i was like wow the chief super is coming down and telling me this man i was like this it was a real knucklehead mindset but that was my mindset at the time it was like wow man this is this is i'm the real deal you know and it was it was tough because like i grew up with my sort of uncles who were gypsies who lived like cowboys going from town to town committing crime earning money hustling all the elder people on my estate were the same. Was that all your mum's fat side? My mum's side. Yeah, what yeah. about your dad's side of the family? Was that? I didn't know any of them. Just London people, regular London. All people. London, yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. So I didn't, I didn't know any of my dad. Like my dad left where I was one. That was it. Okay. Never, gotcha. never see him yeah. for years. But it was just like the mindset I got into of mm. like sort of this wild rogue lifestyle, which was really attractive um, to me back then. Um, and so, yeah. Whereas if that police officer had said, tell me why you're angry. Why are you so angry? I think I probably would have choked up because mm. I would have had to think about probably the reason I was angry and all the stuff that had happened to me. Yeah. Instead, he wanted to sort of try and scare me into, you know, change. And um, you couldn't scare me. Nothing was going to scare me. My own family hurt me in my own home. Mm. So nothing you can say can scare me. What about going into the cells as a 15-year-old? Did that scare you? Um, the, It did, yeah, mate. It did. You know, like it was like this reality of like, wow, this is it. Like, yeah, close the door and it's like, this is it. There's nothing else here. You know, there's not really much daylight through, you know, and it was, it was just like, God, you know, and I didn't want to. I I didn't want to continue. Really, I didn't want to continue committing crime. Um, but that lifestyle and the power that comes with that lifestyle is seductive. It was for me. You think I had no control or power over much in my life growing up, and now I'm waving a gun around, and when I do, everyone is like hands up. So it's seductive that power. But then you go into the contrast of being powerless in this jail facility now mm. and are you in with other cellmates or is it because you're so young that they got you separated no so i was in on the remand wing quail which is basically with all it's like the murderer's wing i, I think it's changed now the format that they have there and um yeah. these, are, these are adult murderers i'm not too sure how old they are to be honest with you i think do you know what i'm not too sure i'm not too sure but i was definitely the youngest by far you know, like um, when I think of my cellmate, Dread, who I talk about in the book, who was like six foot four, massive, you know. Yeah, give us the background on Dread because he's a good character in the book. Yeah, Dread's a good guy, man. I, you know, this is the thing about prison. You go in prison and you have nicknames for people. So like Dread was just because he was massive and he had dreadlocks. <laughs> so I never knew his real name. So I don't even know, you know, 
He might he might be alive. He might be dead. He might have even read the book. If you've read the book, that's I'm talking about you. <laughs> <laughs> Because you don't know. You leave prison and then you never have contact with that person ever again. Describe how Dredd treated you when you first showed up at his cell. Oh, it's just, it was hilarious looking back in hindsight, you know, because I had this sort of, I remember when they when they first told us in Richmond uh, Magistrates, you're both going to fight me offenders. I was like chuffed. I was like, because I knew, mate, when I get out of here, my street cred's going to be through the roof. <laughs> I knew it. Um, because I'd seen it on on Ivy Bridge Estate, you know, there'd be people who'd come out of prison, and because you've been to prison, they automatically think you're now tough, and no one will mess with you. And drug dealers would just go, "Here you go, mate, take all of that." I know no one's going to try robbing you because you just come out of prison, <laughs> and everyone thinks everyone who's been to prison is nuts, right? <laughs> and so, um, I knew when I got out, I'm gonna have this mad street credibility. Um, which was all part of the dream. The dream was being strong and powerful so I can be in a position where no one could ever hurt me again, basically. You know, I was trying to heal that wound as a, of the young boy who had no power or control. And, um, yeah, so... So did Dread put you in your place a bit? Well, he did, mate, yeah, <laughs> he did. He was just like... <laughs> he was just like... I think if if he could have said it, he would have just said, shut the fuck up and sit down. But he, he didn't. It was just like, because I was just like, when it, so what happens next? When are we getting out? When do we get food? When do we get, do we get newspapers? <laughs> and he was just like, just one word answers. No, no. In an hour. Yes. No. It was like, he was just like, this, this fucking white kid. Oh, she just piss <laughs> off. Why have I got this guy in myself? But eventually we... You know, you spend 23 hours a day locked up every day with that person. You really get to know him really well. And I got to see his, you know, like softer side. You know, yeah, he had this thing. He was a massive black guy with dreadlocks. He looked intimidating, but dread didn't come from that life. He come from a good sort of Christian type family. But like a lot of young black men find it hard getting on in the world. You know, it's tough, man. And um and so he went down, you know, the wrong path himself. Um What but, was he in there for? Um, I think it was like a it was like a robbery that went wrong. I think he was a driver of it. Um and so, you know, he was a good guy, man. He was a good guy. And I would love to see that guy again. You know. But I couldn't even tell you his first name. I don't even know his first name. It might happen. Um yeah. So how are you getting along with your neighbours? In the in prison, yeah, right, okay, <laughs> right, mate. It was I, so. This is the thing. I go to prison the first time. All I hear about when I, I'm out on the streets is if you go to prison, you don't have to win the fight. You just have to fight. Showing hearts. Yeah, you just yeah. have you just have to stand up for yourself. And so basically, I was like, okay, cool, I can do that. I know how to fight. I've, I've had loads of fights. And so when I get to prison, I just think, okay, cool. The first person who gives it to me, I'm just going to punch him, right? Because <laughs> that's what I thought in my head you got to do. And so when we have this scene in the showers where I get there, we you have your first showers, I, I got some shower gel. And so like everyone's got their boxers on so when I go there. This is my first time. I'm, I, don't, I don't know the rules yet. And uh, I think, well, I'm going to keep my boxers on. Didn't really know why. Um and just come, put, turn the shower on, put the shower gel on my head, and I put the shower gel on the shower thing in front of me. And um, 
And while the soap's in my eyes, someone nicks my shower gel. Mm. Now I realise when I look at everyone's boxers, they've got the shower gel stashed in their boxers. And I'm like, that's why everyone's got their bloody boxers mm. on. So I'm like, come on, man. I'm like, give me my shower gel back. <laughs> I'd, be, I'd been there like a couple of days. <sighs> Everyone, no one's saying nothing. And I'm like, fuck, what am I going to do now? I've got, this is, I've got to make a stand here because if they think they can take my shower gel, they're probably going to try taking my food and what not else. So I just said like, you know, okay, then friend, no one's going to answer it. Then whoever's took my shower gel, go fuck your mum. And with that, Pepsi who I don't know what his name was, but he was really a small black kid, but he was like massive, wide. And so everyone called him Pepsi because <clears throat> he was small and stocky like a can of Pepsi. <laughs> Crazy, right? But so I never even knew his real name. And um, and anyway, he turned out to be the toughest kid on the wing. I didn't know that. Mm. I'm a newbie to the wing. And he he come out, what'd you say about my fucking mum? And I was like, you fucking had me give me my fucking shower gel and we got into this altercation and next thing we just started scuffing but you've got to remember like we're in our pants we're wet and it's water everywhere so we're sliding over all over the place and um, I think if we were out on the wing he probably would have beat me but I got a few punches on him and I ended up completely no marks on me at all so now much to what I thought would be a blessing it was much not a blessing um, was everyone on the wing was like, oh my God, Maisie's a nutter. He's crazy. This kid's crazy. This crazy white kid. And so, you know, they was like, he done Pepsi. He's beat Pepsi, the hardest guy on the wing. He's only been here. He's only been here not that long and he's only 15. Right? <laughs> it was mental. It was mental. It was pure fluke how I beat Pepsi. Um, honestly, mate. Honestly. <laughs> Honestly, but of course I was 15 and I loved it. I lived off this sort of, you know, thing. No one messed with me and no one did mess with me. But over the course of sort of being banged up for all that time, it was almost like I could sense in the air, he's not done this. If he gets a chance, he's going to try and get me. Before we get to that, then Pepsi getting you, there was a guy who came in who I think he defended his girlfriend. Jeremy. Can you tell us that story, please? Yeah, so basically, Jeremy had a very privileged upbringing. He'd had a good education. Um, he, I think he went to private school, had a good family. Parent, both parents were married, and he went out in Slough. Um, and they was out one night, and when they come out of the nightclub, back then mobile phones, not everyone had mobile phones at that point, yeah? And so he says to his missus, his uh, girlfriend, they come out of the nightclub. He said, just wait here. I'm going to go to the phone box across the road. And I'm going to call a taxi. And while he was in the, ta- in, the, in the phone box calling the taxi, he was calling it and he could see across the road these blokes grabbing his missus up and she's telling them to piss off and whatnot. So anyway, he's, put, he's ordered the taxi, put the phone in, he's come back over. He's been like, what's going on? And this guy's he's got into an altercation. He's hit this guy once. And the guys fell back. The fight went into the road and he hit him once and he fell back and he cracked his head on the curb. And it killed the guy straight away. One punch, protecting his girlfriend. And so when he rocked up on Quail, you could just, he stood out like a sore thumb. You know, he had nice sort of hair, clean skin, you know. He just, you could see, oh man, this kid don't belong here, man. 
and how it was in there. And I, I, I think it's very similar now, but back then it was like 80, 90% black and they sort of stuck together, the black guys. And uh, so then it left some white kids and most of the white kids got bullied and robbed. The few stood up for themselves like me who just sort of trickled through. No bother. Yeah, and- it's a general law of prison. I think that whatever numbers are the most in that racial category, they pick on the least. Yeah. saw that in Arizona. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, man. Yeah. And Jeremy just, bless him, man. He just... He just got singled out. You know, he just got singled out and it started off with little bits, robbing little bits, and then it and then it was bullying and it just got worse and worse and worse and like you just experiencing that for one day is hard enough and it went on for months for him. And you know, in the end he um he killed himself. He just hung himself. You know. And that was hard because it was like I'd had moments out on the wing with him during you get one hour out yourself where he would sit next to me. And the thing is, is like, you don't want to be associated with this guy because A, you it might become your responsibility to protect him and B, they might start thinking, oh, well, you're weak. I'm going to pick on you as well then because if I'm going to pick on him in front of you and you don't do nothing, does that mean you're weak as well? And so it was like, man like I'm so outnumbered here you know like I'm just not going to get involved and Dredd was saying the same to me he was like Michael just stay away mate because you're going to get drawn into that war there's too many of them and there's one of you and Jeremy ain't going to fight so I was just like observing it over the over months weeks and months him just and he was just lost more weight more weight more weight more weight and um and yeah, he just, you know, we all come out for food one day and then within minutes they were like, back in your fucking cells, back in your cells. And as the prison guard s- slammed my door, um, the flap on the door went, psh, opened again, just enough for me to see out. And I just saw the trolley with the white blanket over it and white feet. That was how I knew it was Jeremy. It was two white feet, two big white feet. He was a tall white kid. And they were big white feet. And I was like, fuck, that's Jeremy. I bet that's fucking Jeremy. Mm. And that was it. Yeah, man. So while you were in the cell with Dread, then, what other crazy things happened around that time? Oh, mate, there's so much happened, mate. It didn't go in the book, <laughs> man. What's the craziest? So we, um, he actually, so this confirms the age thing. So he turned, it was on his... Um, 21st birthday, his girlfriend brought him in weed. Dred's girlfriend. Dred's girlfriend brought him in weed. And, um, and we got stoned basically, you know, um, and that was it. Yeah. Yeah. So. And was there a lot of spice or any of the other drugs? Not back then, mate. Nah, not back then. Not back then. I'm not, I'm not sure if that was Dred or if that was Raymond. I can't remember. That could have been Raymond when we got his girlfriend brought the drugs in. Mate, I can't remember. So how long are you in the cell with Dread for? Oh, most of my time. Most of For the time. first time, yeah. Apart from when I when I came when I came back from court that day and I had the episode with in the dorm. Yeah. 
but then I ended up back in the cell with Dread after. All right, all right. So let's go to court then. So yeah, sorry, it's yeah. a bit. Oh, it's a bit all over the place. But yeah. so yeah, so we go to court, Felton magistrates, because I was in there on another, um, on another charge. I think it was the assault on police charge, and um, and I go to court, and there's like a trial or something going on there that day, and. Anyway, we get stuck in the court waiting for this other guy who's going to Feltmere Offenders and the Securica van saying, we're not leaving until all of you are in the van. So anyway, we get back to Feltmere Offenders and the prison guards have changed over. So normally the prison guards who work in the day know, keep Maisie and Pepsi separated. Don't put them in the same cell. Mm. And so when I get back, the the night guard's there and he's gone... Okay, cool. All the other cells are taken. I'm going to put you in the dorm. And I was like, I was excited, man. I didn't even, I didn't know who was in the dorm. Because oh. when you're in your cells 23 hours a day, you just get let out and you just go to the get your food. So I don't see where everyone is. And um, But I'd never been in a four-man cell. I thought, this is going to be great. I get some new... I'd heard all the dread stories, man. I was a bit bored of all the stories, man. <laughs> I was like, <laughs> give me some new content, man. <laughs> and... Um, I was like, yeah, good. Another, and there's three inmates in there I can talk with. So anyway, literally got up, went into the, opened the cell door, went in, prison guard shut the door, and I looked around, and it's Pepsi, and it's two mates. Oh, yeah, yeah man. And it was like, did, did your heart just sink? Pe- Pepsi was like laying on the bed, and then he suddenly saw who it was, and he went, he sat up on his seat, and he was like. Cool, cool, Maisie, cool. No beef, no beef, man. No beef, we're cool. And I was like, fuck, what do I do now? Do I start shouting to the prison guard? Gov, gov, come back, come back. Give me out, give me out. <laughs> and they're probably just going to rush me. Or do I try and play it cool? <laughs> and I was like, this moment, it was just like, oh. what do I do here? And um, and yeah, man, they was... we. He played it cool. He was like, there's no beef. We're cool, man. Let's talk. He was like, get, let me get, we'll talk. Where are you from? What do you do? We were sharing stories. Always I had like one eye on his, he had two mate, two of his mates in the cell and I'm keeping an eye on both of them, making sure where I'm sitting is in the corner of the room. Um, And then, yeah, it lights out, laid on my bed and I'm like, you know, fuck man I've just got I'm just praying please God please man surely Pepsi wouldn't have kept me been lying all that time and then yeah just as I closed my eyes boom pillow over my head and uh, they just like beat beat me half to death basically just like punches or they have weapons or anything no no just just punches yeah I mean they wouldn't have had time if they had started making weapons I would have seen so they just it was just like just just punches, just, you know, I'm on the bed and it was just everywhere, mainly in the Did top. Did they have you held down in a certain position then so you couldn't move? Yeah, so it was like pillow over, over my head and just, you know, both of them, they're just like the other two, like leaning over me and just, you know, punching oh, me man, all, man. All, the top, all the top half and through the pillow as well. And, um, Oh mate, yeah. I mean, that was hard to write about that scene. It was hard to relive that scene. Did um, you start like passing out? Yeah, like I, I, I thought this is it because I was. You thought you were gonna die. I thought I, I, this is it. I'm dead. 
you know, because I was like screaming and screaming, but it's like in Fertling Offenders, the the dorm is like in the far corner and the prisoner's office, the prison guard office is right there. So it's all, it's, it's, I wouldn't say it's a furbish, but it's very far away. Mm. So he would never hear my muffles through the pillow. And it just went on and on and on. And it was just like, I thought, I went through these phases of like, okay, it's gonna, it's, they've got to stop. I'm, they're not fucking ever going to stop. And then it was just like, saying my goodbyes in my head, thinking of my mum and thinking of, thinking of it all and then just then just passing out and then um and then it was dread is dread saved my life mate dread no, i never come back to dread cell he could hear some of the commotion and then the cells next to them was pepsi's other mates and they were going fucking get him fucking beat him fucking because they you know they'd obviously pass notes through the pipe to say we got Maisie in here we're gonna batter him like i didn't know any of this so they're all cheering it on and Dred's heard it and gone, it's like there's a fight kicking off. Maisie ain't here. That sounds like Pepsi cell because everyone's going, Pepsi, fucking kill him, fucking kill him, Pepsi. And he's gone, called the prison, pressed the button, called the prison guard. He said, I think, May, did you put Maisie in that cell? Prison guard's like, yeah. He's like, fucking get up there. Get Maisie out. And so this whole process took a while though, you know, he, Dread was Dread was trying to figure out figure it all out, and then you press the button, and the prison guard's doing a crossword or something, and he's like, "Oh, what do they want now?" He's come stumbling along. Meanwhile, I'm getting battered, <laughs> and yeah, he pulled me out, and you know, I was sort of patched up, put back in the cell with uh, with Dread. Yeah, man. So when they pulled you out of that cell, then did you go to like the medical unit yeah I went to like a medical unit was you know like assessed and you know it was all really like just external stuff you know but it was the the the, 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 the there were so many punches to my head mm. you know that was what you know part made me pass out mm. you know um, I, they punched me so much that one of my eyes was just blood it was all blood. That's how many punches I got to the head. That looking at my eye, it was just like just all red. One of them, um, and yeah, it was just yeah, it was it was it was tough reliving that when when I had to write that. So going back to the cell with dread, you've got Pepsi downstairs still or in the area. How are you feeling about living so close to these guys now? Yeah, I mean, it was one of them things where. Like you didn't really have a choice. You just had to sort of get on with it, really. Can you remember the first time you actually saw Pepsi again? Yeah, it was like a couple of days later. And what was the reaction? Bre like? Breakfast, just laughing. Just laughing at you. Laughing at me, sniggering. Calling me, you know, little bitch. Look who's laughing now, you little bitch, and all this sort of stuff. Were you fearful that they might try and get you again somewhere? Um... I knew if if whatever situation I was in that happened again, they wouldn't get as long as they did, and I'd have I'd have a more of a chance. And I knew, and I could fight back then, you know, not now, but I knew okay, as long as I keep my wits about me, as soon as I sense it, I just go start attacking them, and within a minute or so, the prison guards will be there, even if it's in the showers, you know, because uh, they keep an eye out when it's in the showers, so. 
I did fear for it, but I knew I'll never that'll never happen again. Where they have like they had like five ten minutes of just you know of, of just doing what they want basically. So you mentioned about going to court. What's actually happening with your case at this stage? Yeah, so the court case was just trickling on. You know, like we both went no comment. So you know, we was in for attempted murder, and um, you know. It was my mate who stabbed the guy in the throat. Hold on a second. So we've jumped now from the robbery of the shop mm-hmm. to attempted murder. Yeah. So I didn't. So let's... I didn't go to prison for the armed robbery. Yeah. I didn't go to prison for that. Okay. Because what happened was I went to court. I was fifteen. Yeah. My solicitor pulled up all these reports from hospital, social services. They was like, "Look at this fucking kid's life. What are you going to gain by locking this kid up? This kid needs help." And so I got off and I had all this other like probation and community service. I had loads and loads of stuff, like a five-year thing I had to do. And then like two weeks later, we went out drinking in Twickenham and there was a rugby match on. Who's we? Me and like all my mates. It was like this sort of, we had a gang and um, and we went out in Twickenham and it was a rugby match and there was loads of, you know, rugby fans there and one of them racially... Like, Shet called him a racial word, and um, it turned into a fight. And my mate just took it too far. He smashed a bottle on his head and then stabbed him in the throat four or five times. So, how do you get roped into getting arrested for that? So, just like the police just come and nicked everyone, they nicked all of us. But the the people who saw it said. Everyone ran apart from the white kid and and the other kid, and so the police basically gave let, released everyone and interviewed me and my mate and said, "Who done it?" And we both like the code of the street, you don't cross. So we was like, no comment, no comment, no comment, no just no comment to everything. And they was like, "Well, you both go prison," and I was just like, "Fine, we'll both go prison." And and so that was it. And so that was the attempt. That's when the uh, that's the first time I'm in. I've just turned 16. I turned 16 in the July. This was about the August, I think, something like that. And um, I was in prison. I was on the wing. That's when the whole Pepsi scene happened. So I was just turned 16. Um, and yeah, it was um, that court case was trickling on the whole time I was in there. And um, and then police put up all these signs everywhere in Twickenham saying can any witness come forward serious you know someone almost lost their life and someone come forward like we was just wait we'd been moved from Quail onto I think it was Lapwing back then and Lapwing was one of the wings closest to the exit so they could get if you had caught they just get you from there and take you so they ain't got to bring you from the other side of the prison and we were both me and my co-D my co-defendant were both on Lapwing, he was in the cell above me, and I'm and and so we're talking through the cell. And the prison guard comes to my opens a flap and he said, "Maisie, pack your stuff. You're going home." And I was like, "That's one of the other inmates winding me up." <laughs> <laughs> so I just didn't do anything. I kept talking to my mate, and then the governor comes back and he says, "Maisie, what are you fucking doing?" I said, "Pack your stuff. You're going home." I was like, "What?" I was like, "I thought this was a wind up." He was like, "No, you got judging chambers." And judging chambers was like this urban myth in prison that like 
very rarely happens, but every <laughs> every now and again they would say, "Oh man, this guy got judge in chambers. The police they come to his cell and he just got sent home." And it was like, "Oh, you'd like you'd fantasize about judge in chambers, right?" Yeah. And like, and it happened to me, and I was like, "Fuck!" <laughs> so literally, I'm packing my shit up, and they're calling everyone out for dinner at the same time. And so literally my mate come down and he was like, what's going on? I was like, I just got fucking judging chambers. I don't know. And he, I was like, literally, I had my prison bag full of stuff, <laughs> HM prison on it. And I just give him the whole fucking bag. It had my radio, sugar, tobacco, everything. The only thing I kept was Mike Tyson's autobiography. <laughs> <laughs> and then, yeah, it like it got released, got released that day. So you've not like really had like time to think, all right, I'm going to get released. Here's what I'm going to do when I get out. You just shot out into the world. Yeah. Are you thinking, I don't want to live this lifestyle anymore or are you just too young to get to that stage yet? Sean, honestly, mate, prior to getting released, I was like, I'm never coming back here. I do not want to come back here anymore. Like, it was that incident with Pepsi was like the thing for me. It was like, I do not want to come back here. This sucks. This is shit. Spending pretty much 23 hours every day just locked up. I hated it. And so when I left prison, I was like, okay, all I need to do is just stick to my probation and all community service and stuff and just look for a job. I was like, I must be able to get a job, even if it's a real shitty job. And so I applied for jobs, real shitty jobs as well. And the first question they are is like, where have you been for the past six months? And I'm like, well, you're going to find it all out if you check. So I'm just going to tell you, I've been to prison. Okay, what have you been to prison for? Attempted murder. Okay, right. And straight away, it's like, no one's going to employ you. And that's what happened. No one. So I got loads of no's, loads of no's. No, 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 no. You're not right for this. You're not suitable. And so I was like, what should I do, man? And then I thought, okay, surely if I go to the army and I say to the army, look, just put me in a unit that is on the front line like a disposable force you know like the cannon fodder you send in first you know like send the lunatics in first to get mowed down by the machine gun just put mate I'll be one of them <laughs> right I was that desperate mate I didn't I didn't want to go back to prison and uh, and even then the military careers advisor just laughed me out of the office he was like mate this ain't for you he's like you've got a conviction for possession of firearms and you want us to give you a gun <laughs> He was like, get out. <laughs> yeah, so, and I sort of, I remember when I heard that, and we laugh about it now, but I tell you what, mate, I felt completely fucking hopeless mm. when that happened. I really did, man. I was like, I can't even get a job in an infantry unit, man. I was like, what What? what am I meant to do? And I just ended up going back to my neighbourhood and get, getting back involved with crime again. With crime again. It was like all the, I tried to not go back to that way of life, but the world almost was like boom, 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 and it pushed me back. So the only thing I could make money with, which was illegally, you know? Is it um, drugs again or stealing, robbing? Just like robbing, yeah. Burglaries, um, all sorts of mad stuff, you know. Robbing dealers, all sorts. It was just chaos. It was chaos. There's a lot of it we couldn't fit in. We couldn't fit in every single thing in the book, but just wild, just just wild stuff. Do you remember what the wildest stuff was that you did then? Um, 
I would say if we were to think at that period of time or if you wanted to fast forward, are you thinking the craziest stuff in total? Or just, no, just at this period in just time. At, just yeah. at, just yeah. at this period of time. So there was, we had a thing at the, at the time where it was coming up, it was sort of coming up to this period where a lot of people were selling drugs, mainly weed. But because we grew up on Ivy Bridge and it was very close to Richmond and Twickenham, a lot of kids from good homes had good education, thought they were tough and wanted to start being drug dealers. Mm. So for us, it created this lovely opportunity of like, well, we know we can rob these motherfuckers easily, you know, because they're like rich kids who are selling drugs to their rich mates. And and so that was it. I mean, we found out, we'd just go out drinking and just say to people, do you know anyone who can get weed or whatever? And if there was someone there, we just robbed them there. But um, Is the, are you, Weapons involved at this level? Yeah, we'd, have, we'd carry a knife or a knuckle duster or something like that. Um, anything that we could conceal. But there was one guy who who was a big dealer in Twickenham, and um, and he didn't. Anyone who got anything from him had to go to his house, but they could get big amounts. And um, and yeah, one day you know we went there and you know we kicked the door off and went in and I think we we first we knocked on the door, there was no answer. We knock knock knock. We're knocking for ages, and I think he looked and seen shit this is mazy <laughs> this he just sort of knew what was coming and so then when we kicked the door off we thought it was empty but this guy was pretending he he was asleep he laid on the bed and played dead and so yeah we just proceeded to like lift he's a, pretending to be asleep and we're lifting the mattress up and he's pretending to be asleep <laughs> and he will not open his eyes man he's just like properly playing dead and we're just too we're like young wild kids just ransacking the place and um yeah i mean i'm not proud of that stuff i don't feel proud of that when i share this story mm. but it was just it was just well if he played dead and he never got hurt perhaps it, the strategy worked for him yeah he didn't get hurt man we just took all the drugs and that was it yeah you know so what gets this back to the attention of the police i just kept racking up crimes you know what i mean and then eventually, you know, um, I get nicked for saying else. And they're like, you know, bail isn't even a question now. They just send you straight back. What's that offence? Um, bloody hell, mate. I can't even remember. There were so many. Mm. It was just like, I used to get nicked at this point, And it was like, they were talking to me about three or four different things. You know, because I was just a wild kid. I I was on the run. I was I wasn't living at home. I was different addresses. I was here, there. I was just all over the place. So then I'd get nicked, and some of the stuff wouldn't be mine either. They'd be like, "Well, this happened. Is that anything to do?" You know. So I, in all honesty, mate, I can't even remember all of the all of the details. But um, it was just loads of wild stuff. Just just mental, mental stuff. So you're gonna get a sentence now from this new nicking. This is the same. No, I go, I get nicked for a load of stuff, go back on remand. I get charged for like some of it, but because I'd served so long, a lot of it got dropped. Some of it I got convicted of, but because I'd been in on remand for so long, they were like, you know, we're going to release him. 
um, with loads of other stuff, community service and other stuff, which was often the case for me because when I'd get nicked, I'd have so many things that I'd be on remand for other stuff as well. Do you know what I mean? So it just, I'm I'm on remand. No, he's still on remand for this. He's still on remand for this. So eventually when I got out, they was like, you know, look, he's he's done so long. Just let him, just release him. So eventually I got out the second time and the second time wasn't even a question about going and getting a job because I knew I tried it the first time. So straight away, when I got out the second time, it was like, I'm going straight back to that way of life. But what had happened when I'd been locked up that time is a crack and heroin epidemic had hit. And I don't know if you remember it, it was sort of like in the 90s where suddenly crack and heroin were everywhere. Well, at least they were in our community. Everyone was doing crack and heroin. Even they were selling it to rich kids as well. Everyone was at it. And everyone was just creaming it, loads of money from it as well. And so when I come out of prison the third time, everyone was like, I was like, right, what's, what are we doing to earn money? How are we making moves? And um, they was like, no, we're not doing it. We're just selling crack and heroin. And they were like earning a lot of money from it as well. And I was like, okay, great. I'm like, I'm going to do that then. And um, I was just like the worst drug dealer, man. I was terrible because I'm an addict. <laughs> so I just used to take all my own stuff. You know, people would call me up and <clears throat> ask for stuff. And I'd be like, nah, man, there ain't none. They'd be like, what? Have you not? You, you just picked up an hour ago. I'm like, I know, but what I got is for me. I'm not selling it. I want it for me. And so, yeah, I was just the worst dealer ever. And I had a friend like that called Wildman. No matter what quantity of drugs I gave him, he would just consume it himself. Yeah, there you go. Yeah. So he was an addict as well, probably. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Big time. yeah, yeah. So then the guy would come to me like, where's my money? I'd be like, mate, you're going to have to wait. I need to go and rob some people <laughs> to, 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 to get the money. And so then it was back to doing the other stuff, robbing other dealers and, you know, just just mad stuff to get money. And then... When I went back to prison the third time, I'd been using heroin every day for like two or three months, you know, and was like a fully blown heroin addict. Before we get to this third prison stretch then, your mum's got a battle of her own with alcohol going, mm. hasn't she, over these mm. years? Mm. And was this the point where she tried to get you to go to a meeting? That was on the last prison sentence. That's oh, on the last one. Okay, yeah. we'll get to that later then. Yeah. All right, so how many sentences did you do? Three. Three. So we're going into the third one now. Yeah. And what's that conviction for? This one, again, it's like a mixture, a mixture. Of, of loads of stuff. Like, ugh, There's loads of stuff, mate, on my record, honestly. Assault on police, possession of firearms, possession of firearms, possession of knife, possession of drugs. How easy is it to get a real firearm in London? Back then, it was like near on impossible. N- none of the elder kids from, you know, my community could get it. Um I don't know what it's like now. I've been out of that way of life for a long time. But um, back then it, was, it wasn't it was easy. We couldn't get one. Yeah. I tried. Yeah. I okay. really tried. So which, uh, you're going back to Feltham again? Go back to Feltham again, mate. Yeah, back to Feltham. And how old are you now on this third one? 18. Okay. 18, yeah. And what's the crossover for going in the adult? It, back then it was about 21 and a half. Okay. So that's when everyone sort of left. I think it's 21 and... Yeah, about 21 and a half, I think. Because we had a couple of people who we shared the 21st birthday in, the, in on the wing and it was always like a celebration. Um, so, yeah. And then go back to prison the third time and I'm I'm fully blown now. Fully blown heroin addict. Ooh. Yeah, fully blown. Been using it every day. Crack and heroin. 
there's a combination crack bring you up heroin bring you back down and yeah went on to the detox wing in fat man offenders and you know they they said okay you got two choices here you can go you can do and i don't think they give this option anymore but they said you can do a, a really condensed detox it's like seven or ten days mm. or you can do a 14 day detox and um and me being like this this tough guy, I was like, nah, give me the short one, man. Just let's just get this over with. I just want it over. Cause I'd been in, in police cells, then court, then and they'd been getting not the proper medication, just enough to keep you going. So I was like, just give me the stuff to just flush it out. And then um about sort of twenty eight, twenty four, forty eight hours into this detox, mate, it was like hell. Pure hell. Mm. I mean like hallucinating hot one minute cold the next minute like scratching yourself really itchy really itchy really itchy so itchy that you you're itching 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 and then you look down you realize you're bleeding Mm. you're like oh my god i'm bleeding and then thinking you see stuff under your skin or you see insects or spiders up the wall it was just it was it was like hell how many months of heroin use and crack use probably about I'd say two or three months. Okay. I hadn't been out of prison that long, you see. I just hit it so hard again. I was like back in really not that long after. And um, and then, yeah, I was like, man, I can't. I just can't do this. And then I remembered how Jeremy killed himself because we figured it out. We was like, how did Jeremy hang himself in the cell, man? And then we figured it out, me and Dredd, how we would have wrapped the bed sheet up made it like a rope, roll it up really thin like you're rolling a joint, make it like a noose, one end around the bars, the other end around your neck, and then roll off the bed, and it would it would pull you like that. Um, and yeah, so... Yeah, because I've been getting asked a lot recently about this Epstein uh, suicide or murder, and I just read that part in your book, mm. where you just, you get it and just roll off the bed. Roll off the bed, yeah. Yeah. That's the trick. Yeah, yeah, so you 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 almost like flip on yourself because you roll like that and then you go like that. You end up like that. Yeah, back round, back round the other way. Yeah, like that. So your feet are touching the floor, but your 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 top half is pulled right up. So you're almost like, but it works. You know, and that's that's it. how that other guy did it. Yeah, yeah, it works. It worked. It worked. You know, it worked for me. It worked for you. Yeah, yeah. Well, I was, you know. I was dead, mate. They brought, oh, you were dead? They brought me back to life. All right, let's set the scene yeah. for this then. You, what's going through your head now as you're putting this thing on? It was just like... Sadness that like I'd had these hopes of wanting to change. I'd had these hopes of wanting to be a better person. I tried it. I'd failed. I always had this dream of being better than my dad. And here I was, I was just like, I'm just going to fucking die here in my own sweat and piss and just... Did any thoughts of how that would affect your mum kind of like try and pull you away from that? Not really, no. I thought about my mum. I did think like, God, I'm sorry, mum. I couldn't, you know, but it was just unbearable. I couldn't couldn't carry on. It was unbearable. That was the truth of it. And um, I don't know how many suicides took place when they were running that detox but my understanding is they don't do that type of detox anymore it's like a they'll give you a a six week detox now so they really stretch it out 
Um, but yeah, it was unbearable. Like suicide, death was like the best option. That's what point I got to. Um, and yeah, man, like all I wanted was it all to stop, just all of it to stop. And it did. There was a moment before I blacked out where I thought of it all. I saw a white light and I felt some peace and I was gone. What about as you're rolling off the bed? Is that just like adrenaline's just going whoosh? When I, prior to doing it, I thought, this can't fucking work. How the fuck can this work? I was looking at it all when I was there and I was like, my feet can touch the floor. This can't fucking work, surely. And I was like, I better do this fucking hard for this to work properly and yank me properly. So I did. I put some proper effort into it and it went almost so hard it yanked me back up. And it was like, you know, straight away you go like this. And then you remember how painful the other option is laying on the bed and clucking. And it was just like doing it, doing it, and then and then it calms down. And then, you know. So how did you get discovered? It was just like, honestly, by the grace of God, I think, you know, because the prison guard, he was a night guard. It happened in the middle of the night. So the night guard, every now and again through the night, has to do the rounds. Just He'll just... Open the flat on your cell, just check you're still alive or if you're asleep. And he said it to me a few days later, once I come back round, he said, if I had have started at that end of the wing, you would have been dead. It was just lucky that I was one of the first cells on the on the side of the wing he started on. Or even if he started on the top floor, he, but he started on the ground floor on this side of the wing and I was three cells in from that. It was just at that moment, like, I don't know how long I'd been out for, but he said, if it, if I, even if I'd been five, ten minutes later, you might have survived, but you would have been a vegetable because you would have had such, so much brain damage from the lack of oxygen. And, um, yeah, he just, you know, he this all he said. He said he came, he came in, he cut me down, and then on the bed, called other people, court made calls but he knew how to do the CPR and that and I I remember sort of coming round and hearing like an argument between the two guards who's fucking who is it they're, they're arguing about stuff who was meant to check them eh? you fucking whoa, 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 whoa. and moaning about uh, couldn't it make it all out but that was my first memory seeing the light which at first I was like am I dead and then realising it was the cell it was a light on the ceiling of the cell. And um, and then, yeah, and then the argument with the prison guards and then brought back to life and carried into a padded cell and then spent, you know, I think it's about another week or so in a padded cell. Yeah, and then that's when my mum come and visited me. And that was like the defi- one of the defining moments in my change. So... Did they tell your mum what had happened? Yeah, yeah. They would have notified my mum, yeah. And that first meeting with your mum, how did that feel? So anyone who's been to prison will know when you, the visiting room in a prison is a place where inmates like to act like, yeah, I'm all right, mate. I'm all right in here. I'm, I'm running the gaff and all this bullshit, right? 
They want to pretend to their family and friends like, I'm cool, man. This place ain't phasing me. <clears throat> and that's what it was for me as well. I was the same. I'd go out and I want to look tough. And um, and when they caught, come to the cell, they come to my padded cell and said, you got to visit. Your mum's come. And my mum didn't used to visit that often. And um, she come to visit me and um, and I had all bruises around my neck. And I was just, I was just completely wounded, battered. I didn't have anything in me. I could barely make it to the visit, let alone trying to act tough. And I go out and my mum's sitting there and she looks, she clearly looks different. There's something more to her than you can see, right? And, um, and yeah, she said, um, son, I, 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 I didn't want to tell you until it's been a while, but I, I'm an alcoholic. I've been going to AA meetings and I'm, three months sober and I just burst into tears because it was like it was something I wanted all my life was just one person I could count on like one sober parent and she held me and I cried and I cried and in front of all the other people having a visit and I just didn't give a fuck I was like I don't care man it was like I just want my fucking mum do you know what I mean just want my fucking mum, man. And that was like this moment of like, um, maybe you're not this guy that you've that you think you are. Maybe you're not this tough guy. Maybe there's something else here. Maybe there's something better here. You know? And that was it. I never went back to prison again after my mum got sober. How much longer did you have to serve on that sentence? Um, I don't think it was that long. I think it I don't think it was that long because I remember when we went back to court for one of the things, all the suicide attempt was brought up by my solicitor and there was reports from mental health people to say um, he's not in a good spot. This kid's not in a good spot. You know, I, I think if he if he stays in here longer, he could end up not making it out. And um, at that time, there was a lot of that going on in Felton. So I think a couple of months later, a couple of months later, I was out. Did anything strange happen in those couple of months? Just the only thing that I recall happening, that I don't think that mentions it in the book, is um, there was moments where there was potential altercations, which I normally would have stood up for myself, and I didn't. I let it slide. I just was like so done with it. I was like, I don't want to add one more day to this bloody sentence I just want to get out of here do you know what I mean and so yeah in that it taught me a bit of humility how to just bite your tongue and just let people get away with making comments and there's felt me offenders people make comments every bloody day and it just taught me you know just bite your tongue man just don't get into it the guard who saved you did you feel like you had a special rapport with him after that yeah well it was weird it was because he was a night guard and so I was in that padded cell for a week. And so I would only see him at night, really. And we didn't have much to say to each other, just, a, you know. And then once you were deemed sorted, you were just put in with the rest of the population again. So you'd never see him again. So I couldn't even tell you that prison guard's name. I'd, I'd love to talk to him again we'd love to get him on the podcast if he's out there. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> we've had one prison guard have you yeah well, i tell you out of manchester if, if it was in the 90s and you know it was a kid 
on that on that wing. My understanding, having been back there, is very rarely do you find them mid hanging. So there wouldn't be there wouldn't have been many episodes like mine. You either find you normally just find them dead because it's such a small period of them doing it. You got to catch them in a really small time frame. So you've talked about all the dramatic stuff that's happened in prison, but what was an average day in prison like for you? Just like. When I was in prison, there's none of what's in prison now, TV and Xbox and all that stuff. It was like a radio, a deck of cards, and roll-ups. That was it. <laughs> 23 hours a day, <laughs> you know. So were you gambling or anything? No, like, yeah, you might have gamble for fun with matchsticks or a box of tobacco, a matchstick box of tobacco, but, you know, not really. Nah. D- did you make any friends in there? Yeah, there was. There was a guy called Raymond on the... Um, on the second time I was in there and you know he was a white kid from my area and we sort of knew each other and we figured out that if you say you're related to someone you can get put in the same cell as them mm. and so we said um, we told the prison guards yeah that's my, he's my cousin and anyway they believed it and put us in the same cell so it was like you know <laughs> and everyone f- we carried it on because <laughs> we didn't want any other inmates knowing that we were lying in case the other inmates were like, they're lying, and then we got split up. So everyone on the wing then thought we were cousins, <laughs> which basically meant you've got a teammate, you know, two two young white kids, and we had each other's back. And that stint in prison was a real sort of bog-standard time in prison, just radio, food, uh, smoking tobacco, playing cards, you know, really boring. A lot of people prefer having their own cell. Yeah. Did you prefer having the cellmate? Well, I preferred having my own cell after the Pepsi incident. Yeah. I insisted on it, really. I was like, I want a single cell if I go back. I mean, I was sharing with Dread, but, you know, Dread was sort of different. But then um, when the thing, the opportunity come up with Raymond, I was like, well, actually, I could be, me and Raymond could be cool, you know, so. Did you get an opportunity to say goodbye to Dread? I didn't, mate. Didn't get a chance to say goodbye to him. So sad. <laughs> so sad, man. I don't even know Dred's real name. Yeah. That's a thing. Yeah. You know, in prison, you've got nicknames. It's like if you're a beer, really tall guy, they call you little man. If you're a really small <laughs> guy, they call you big man. If you've got Dredge, you're called Dred. Mm. You know, if you're really, you know, white, they call you Milky. What was your nickname? Maisie. Maisie. Just Maisie, because my surname was Maisie. Mine was England. England. <laughs> so I was in Arizona. Oh, oh, you was in Arizona. Yeah, right? yeah of course. Yeah, yeah. Blimey, yeah. So you go out then, and your mum wants to take you to a meeting now. Yeah. What? How receptive to that are you feeling? So it was a funny thing because, like, my mum, my mum used to drink cans of cider with the drunks on the street at the end. Yeah. So in my head, I was like. That's an alcoholic. Yeah. If you're standing on at the park bench, like that's an alcoholic. So I was like, I'm not an alcoholic, man. Mm. I'd never been on a park bench. Yeah. I never drank cider first time first thing in the morning. Yeah. So it was hard to think I'm an alcoholic. Mm. But I knew when I drank and took drugs, I changed. I mm. changed a lot. I would do stuff I'd never do when I was sober. And so it was like a real difficult thing where I was like, I want to go because my mum was so excited about this new thing and I wanted to sort of support her in it because I liked her being sober. But also it was like, I don't know if this is a problem for me. And then when I get there, and I think the youngest person in age to me, bearing in mind I was 18, 
I think the youngest person in age to me was another guy who was like 32, I think. Mm. Something like that. And um, and I was just like, I'm definitely not, I don't belong here, man. I was 18. I was a binger. You know, very, I'd very rarely wake up and drink in the morning, you know. Um, and so it was hard. It was hard admitting that, you know, I got a problem. And it took me a lot more years before I finally threw the towel in. Do you know what I mean? What was pivotal in your life to make you throw the towel in? So, sorry, excuse me, mate. You're fine. Um, I think it was a combination of a lot of things. You know, in between the age of 18 to 25, I had another suicide attempt, sliced my wrists. So 18 to 25, what's leading up to that attempt? So I met a girl in the book called Haley. Haley was like great for me because she gave me stability. She gave me love. She gave me consistency. She gave me all the things I needed. But I was a young man who didn't think I deserved any of that stuff. And in all honesty, it scared the shit out of me because anyone who showed me any love growing up as a kid hurt me. So I always had this suspicion is like, okay, you're saying you love me, but you've probably got another fucking agenda somewhere. You're probably going to fucking hurt me. So I'm not really going to let you get too fucking close to me, you know? And so having someone love me and letting them love me was a painful experience for me. It was like a battle of, should I let them in? Shouldn't I let them in? And what I would do then is self-sabotage them relationships. And part of it was um, cheating. I cheated on her. She went out on holiday to Turkey with her family and all the, the voices in my head were like, she's probably fucking other guys. She's probably, you know, doing this. You're you're just a scumbag from, you know, Ivory Bridge Estate. What was she really seeing you? These are what I'm battling. Why wouldn't she cheat on you? Look what your own family done to you growing up. And so um, I cheated on her and she found out, but she found out like a year or so later when I was sort of on the path of, trying to change my life, getting a job and doing some nice things. And um, she found out and it was like, she, I was living with her family. Her family kicked me out. My mum had already kicked me out. I had nowhere to live. And I was like, I'm going to have to go back to prison, man. Like, this is all I know. I got nowhere to live. So I was like, I'm just going to have to go back to prison. And it was, I was so close to just like, going and committing some crazy crime that would get me like a, a, a one or two year sentence. And thankfully, you know, I didn't. And I went to a party. I got completely shit faced and I was just, I was sitting in a room full of people and I felt completely alone. I felt like I could just be in a cell on my own here. I just feel so alone. And I literally in a trance just went out, went, walked into the kitchen, got a knife out of the block knife and just went like that and just stood there like that and just waited, waited and then just passed out. Is it? Yeah. And what was you uh, conscious of next? In the back of the ambulance. Back of the ambulance. Back of the ambulance, yeah. Patching me up, you know, laying on the thing. They'd injected me with some stuff Um, and was like, you know, okay, we're going to have to take you to the hospital, you know, and I was like, I'm not fucking going to the hospital. 
and like they was like we can't force you but we think you need to you need to get your arm stitched up do you know what i mean and i was like i'm not going to the fucking hospital man and i got out of the ambulance pulled all the stuff out got out went back to the party and just carried on drinking went back to the party yeah went back to the party yeah <sighs> just carried on drinking just carried on drinking everyone left the party everyone was like oh my god these these guys nuts and I sat in this girl's house. I was like this annoying guy. Once I had a drink, I wouldn't leave the party. People would be like, mate, you got to go home. I'd be like, I ain't fucking going home. And I'm not going home. Party stops when I, when I say it stops. <laughs> and this poor girl whose house it was, was like, kept telling me you got to go. I was like, I'm not fucking leaving. You know, like that scene from Jordan Belfort. I'm not fucking leaving. <laughs> That's what I was like. I was a nightmare. And in the end, I was there for, I don't know how long, I think 24 hours, but my arm had like it was infected and it had swollen up and eventually the, the girl's party was got in touch with someone who knew my mum and they called my mum and said uh, Michael's here he won't leave his arm's infected we don't, he's in a really bad way you need to come and get him and then um, my mum came and I had this moment with my mum where I just started crying again similar moment to when I was in Feltham I was just like I couldn't get it around and I up until this point I hadn't told my mum about any of the sexual abuse from her brother so she didn't know any of this stuff she just knew I was in a lot of pain and um, and then yeah I went to hospital and turned out my arm was infected and they had to drain it and pack, put it all back together and then um, yeah that was one of the moments where it was like yeah maybe the drinking you know because when I drink, I do drugs. I don't normally do the cocaine unless I do the alcohol first. It was just on my radar then. How old were you when you finally told your mum about the abuse from her brother? Oh, mate, I was in my 30s. In your 30s? In my 30s, yeah. How did that feel, like, just getting the courage up to say that? It was hard. It was hard. It was hard because at first, she didn't believe me. I've still got two aunties who don't believe me. Who, who are actually angry with me for the book, who are threatened legal action for the book, even though he was convicted of doing it to multiple children who were already with their court papers, if they take me to court, by the way. They don't know that. But Do you think that some crimes are so horrible to some people that if someone so close to them is accused of something like that, they just block it out? I think it's too hard for them to admit. I think it's too painful, you know. And it was especially under their watch as well because they were around when he was around. So it was going on whilst it was there. And, you know, some of the other kids he'd done it to, which I can't say who they are for legal reasons, but they knew them as well. So it was like a lot of it was going on right under their nose. And was your mum devastated then? Mum was devastated. It took my mum a long time to believe me. That's what it took. It took a long time. And in the end, she was like, it makes sense. It made, When you looked at the other kids, the, the other stories, and then him getting murdered at the same time, the police, it was reported to the police. It was like, you know, if he'd done it to them, he's, it probably did happen. Did her hearing that push her to back towards drinking or anything no it didn't no 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 she was she was a fair while sober then you know um 
you know, it was hard. It was hard for her to hear it, but eventually she accepted it. You know. Yeah, I mean, I can't get my head around it. How that would be me knowing someone who'd done that, I'd be really angry. Um, I'd probably want to kill the person, but you know. Going back to after your second suicide attempt, then mm -hmm. you you have this moment with your mom that I imagine is helping you work through things. You know, you're you're releasing something here when you're crying with your mom. What then prevents you from? Um, getting back to the craziness or do you go back to the craziness i was sort of just like barely missing it like i didn't at this point when i got with hayley hayley was really encouraging in her parents i have to oh, you got back with hayley i got back with hayley after the cheating yeah yeah okay yeah yeah, yeah. we got back together okay and um and her parents were like really supportive around it all you know and they were like really encouraging me to get a job so you're living with them i was living with them yeah and so i was getting a job and although i was getting in the odd fight and scuffle i wasn't committing crime to get money i was now working which was a massive step for me you know having a job and earning money legally um but occasionally i would do cr just crazy stuff like i never drank every day but i was a binge drinker and when I would binge, I'd drink and I'd use Coke. And if I used Coke, I, the party wouldn't stop until the Coke ran out. And it would go through until like Saturday, Sunday sometimes. And I'd get up to all sorts of nonsense, womanizing, fighting. I'd, be just, I'd just be completely nuts. I'd turn my phone off. No one would know where I am. And it got to the point where it was like, um, something's got to change here, you know, because I was getting like, opportunities with work and then i'd fuck it up and what kind of work were you doing just all sorts of stuff you know like for instance the the my last drink was at a, a work party in um in ireland and it, i'd got this sales job with this good company real good progression they saw a lot in me um but you know i drank at a christmas party and um and i drank I got into an argument with one of the females who worked there because I felt like they were gossiping about me. They probably weren't. It was all in my crazy head, right? And then um, the managing director of the company, who I think at that time, he won like businessman of the year in Ireland. Lovely guy. And he said, come, I want to, cal let's calm down. Let's go. And he took me, I think, to the like a private bar in, in a private room. And he, he got me these, this, this really expensive brandy to calm me down he didn't know I was an alcoholic right so he's getting me this brandy saying come on let's have a brandy we'll calm you down a bit and obviously what it's doing is pouring more fire on the flame and um, and um, I just kept drinking the brandy brandy and it ended up blacking out and I come round I'm out in the car park with, on the floor with him on top of me and but on and I'm choking him out. What? I'm choking the guy out, yeah. Like properly, oh. properly trying to, oh. like, trying to choke him out like MMA style. <sighs> With everyone around screaming, fucking get off him, fucking get off him. Like, and because I'd been, I'd blacked out. Yeah. I got up and started blaming everyone. I just, it freaked me out. I was like, fucking hell, what has happened? And I got, I let it go of him. I got up. I was like, it's your fucking fault. You're, you, if you never said this, you, and I was like, 
you can fuck off, you can... And I was just in this haze of like, fuck, I didn't really know what had happened. <sighs> and so, um, anyway, I got in a taxi, I carried on drinking the whole way through that night. So I drank so much more that I'd almost completely, the whole party thing seemed like a blur. Mm. And I rocked up to work on the Monday morning, completely like, I drank so much I'd blocked it, most of it out. Mm. And I remember I walked in the office and all the staff going, <gasps> thinking I was back to fight him. Also, <laughs> right? <laughs> it was mental. <laughs> it was mental. And, um, and I just sat down at my desk, like, what's the fucking, what's everyone gasping about? And um, and the MD of the company come out, he said, Michael, let's go, can I have a word? Come to my office. And he was like, you don't remember anything from Friday night, there?" And I was like, no, nah, mate, I, I, no, I remember I had a drink. I, I probably got a bit out of hand. I can't remember exactly what happened. Saying, for saying that, I'm sorry, mate. And he was like, yeah, you tried, almost choked me out. And I was like, oh, my. And he was like, you can't work here, mate. He's like, the women, the female, you insulted the female staff. They're terrified that you're going to do something like this again. And it was right before Christmas. That was December, it was around December the 15th, 2007. And um, it was Christmas. I was unemployed. I was 25. I'd fucked up another job. Mm. Haley was fed up. I was just like, I'm so sick of this. I'm so sick of just fucking scraping by in my life, existing, never achieving anything. And I was like, fuck it. I'm going back to AA. And that was it. I went back to AA, but this time pissed off because I'd been going to AA on and off over the years. Yeah. And I was convinced it didn't work. So that's how that's how I went back into that meeting. I was like, you know, pissed off, broken. And it come to my turn to talk. And I was like, if you're new here in AA, let me tell you something. It's fucking shit. <laughs> it don't fucking work. If it worked, I wouldn't have drank last, this past few days ago and fucked my life up even more. So you're wasting your fucking time coming to these fucking shitty meetings. Right? <laughs> Terrible. And this is in Ireland. It's a predominantly Catholic area in Ireland because I've moved to Ireland at this point. And you see these old Irishmen just go like this. Their head in their hands, just like, I wish this fucking English guy would fuck off back to England. Because I was English guy at a skinhead. They was just like, fuck off out of our meetings. And yeah, and just by the, you know, I, I've had so many moments in my life where I, like, I, I don't know whether to call it God. I don't believe in a religious God. But I, I believe something's fucking had my back, right? <laughs> That's chuckled you, isn't it, Sean? <laughs> yeah, man. It's a reoccurring theme. <laughs> but um, oh. there was a guy at the meeting called Sean. And he come up to me and he said, I want to help you, Michael. He said, I know you want to get sober. And I can see your struggle with it. And what you need to do is do the first three steps of the 12-step program. You need to admit you've got a problem, admit you're not powerful enough to fix it and get a power in your life that can. And I'd always wanted this guy to ask him to mentor me, but I was too scared of asking another man for help because all my interactions with men had been negative all my life. And also if he said no and I felt rejected, it would bring up that old wound of my dad leaving, mm. you know? 
So I didn't ask him. I wasn't brave enough to ask him. I was brave enough to go and get the guy and uh, choke the MD out. But I wasn't brave enough to say, can you help me to this sweet Irish man? So if we try and figure that one out, right? And um, so he said, I want to help you. And I jumped at the chance. I was like, yes, I need your help. I need your help. And he, you know, he, he took me through the first three steps of the, of the program. And since that day, since that moment, I've never had a drop of alcohol or drugs since. It's been uh, be 12 years in December. He saved my life. Do you stay away from that social circle or can you be around people who are like getting high and drunk and it doesn't phase you yeah like i haven't got any mates who get high but i can be around people who get drunk like my fam i'm like my my brother and my brother and sister sophie and justin they drink like you know i've got no and my wife drinks got no problem with that but i i wouldn't be around people who were like snorting cocaine and and you know getting off their tits because it's just not my thing so i feel that i had like a relationship with drugs. Mm-hmm. What Russell Brand says, I'm an addict. If I have a drink, my guard is down. Next thing I'll be smoking crack. I've got to be like, look out like this for the rest of my life. Mm-hmm. But I don't feel like that. I can be around people that are doing mm-hmm. all kinds of things. And it doesn't, it's just like, it's like a phase I went through. Mm-hmm. Do you feel like you are now an addict for the rest of your life? Or do you think that's just over? Nah, mate. <laughs> like, I am an addict. Okay. I'll tell you why. Because <laughs> I get addicted to fucking everything. Yeah. Right? Yeah. It's ridiculous. It's ridiculous, mate. Well, like, there's positive addictions, isn't there? Mate, I tell you, if I'm going to blame my addictive personality for negative stuff, I've got to blame it for a lot of the good stuff too. Yeah. Yeah? Because I wouldn't have been in a position to create a business that would put me in a position to retire at the age of 35 mm-hmm. if I didn't have an addictive personality. Yeah. I was addicted to having the best business which put me in a position where I am today. I'm in a very lucky position. Like I don't have to work. How did you go then from just, you know, getting through these meetings to forming your own business like that? Yeah, so the foundation is the 12-step program. Do the 12-step program because it ch- it's the quickest way to change a human being emotionally and mentally, you know, forces you to look in the mirror at a lot of the shit that you don't want to look at it yourself and you have to accept a whole lot of hard truth about yourself that's the foundation of change but on from that i sort of took it a bit further so i had done a tony robbins course i also had two mentors who were like multi-millionaire business owners successful people how did you obtain them just through aa just went to aa and like heard someone talking about their life and how they've achieved all this great stuff and i'm just like man yeah, that chair what, can I get your number and it was like and then you just you just, you just keep in contact and then whenever I'd have a problem in business I'd call them up and say like what do I I don't know what to do here and I learned so much stuff I learned so much stuff that they don't teach at any university like it's like secrets of the bloody rich club or something you know like <laughs> I swear man it was like just the, all these little things on how to put systems in place in the business so a business can operate without you being in the business. So you can the business can just run and you can just be living your life, doing whatever you want. Stuff that I didn't know, stuff who I've even met people who've got degrees in business management didn't even know. So it's really interesting stuff. And um, and that was it. You know, I got to a point sort of um, four years ago it was where, you know, I was going into my office and it was like I had people there who were just like, you don't need to fucking be here. Just go home. 
I'd be sitting in my office watching like YouTube videos. <laughs> and I was like, why am I coming? I don't need to come here anymore. So I was like, I'm just going to stop coming to work. And then I stopped coming to work. And then I was like, yeah, I'm just going to chill out and retire, man. I just, you know, and then I got bored literally so quickly. And then I was like, I need to do something else. So then I went back into acting, done a bit of acting as a kid. Um, I was like, I'm going to get the book writ. I'm going to do some more voluntary work in prisons. And then pff, now all of this stuff's happened. So have you done voluntary work in prisons and spoke to the guys? I'm done. speaking at in London prisons more, actually. Wow, that's yeah. amazing, mate. Wandsworth, well, one, Wandsworth, one yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. Yeah, it's a tough prison, man. Yeah. Yeah. I do lots of it. I've done mm. lots of it in my early recovery. I got an award for it back in 2014 from the um, an award from the London Borough Hounslow, and it was presented to me by the Chief Superintendent of the Metropolitan Police, Carl wow. Busey, which was really surreal, like getting an award from the Chief Super. It was like, this is crazy. Um. So yeah, I do that. I was I was also running. Um, you know, they put the ban on fentanyl offenders a couple of weeks ago. Did you hear about that? The ban. No. So basically, the first time in history, ever in history, have the government put a ban on any prison on accepting any new inmates. Mm. It's never happened before. Happened to fentanyl offenders about two, three weeks ago. Off the back of that ban, I've been like campaigning for stuff to change in there for ages never never had anything happen off the back of that band a couple of people were like we're going to get you in run one of your courses because I run a men's retreat on my land in Devon where I live in Devon I've got 10 acres and I run a retreats on my land and the course I, I want to take what I teach the men on the retreat I want to take it into Felton and so they was like right we can give you 14 inmates for one day so I was like great so I went in there about Two weeks ago, two or three weeks ago, I was in there for a day, run a course in Fentanyl Offenders. Powerful course. Really went well. 14 inmates, all of them black, apart from one white guy. They had three prison guards in on the meeting and they had the owner of, the the founder of the charity that operates in Fentanyl Offenders called Friends of Feltham sitting in on it. Anyway, cut a long story short, the course went really well. It was powerful. Every inmate signed a feedback form. Every inmate said it was great. Had a meeting after it where the person who organises all this stuff said, yeah, it's great. We're going to get you in. You just need to sign a few forms to get get you in there to run these courses. I was like, okay, fantastic. Since then, had no contact. I've sent, I've sent two or three emails, spoke to local MPs saying, where are these forms? You, I've got to fill out some forms to run these courses. No one's responding. No one's responding. And I tell you, you know what it does, Sean? It puts a big question mark over whether you really want to rehabilitate these kids or not. Well, it's a business, isn't it? And it's a bureaucracy. And I've done talks and politicians have come and they get an emotional high while they're at the talk and they promise the world and then you never hear from them again. Mm, mm. So that's what I've seen. Politicians, they just like, they just want to placate the public and get votes. Yeah, that's it. And you're in the way of that, really. You're inconveniencing them. Mm. They'll like be nice to you at the time, but they they specialize in just putting on the charade to get votes. And what mm. I've, from my own experience, that's what I've, mm. I've um, found. I'm sure there's some well-meaning ones out mm. there, but um, and then if you are rehabilitating people, you know these prisons are expanding all over the world from America. It's gone all over the world, and 
Mm. They're looking to like keep people for longer sentences and yeah. make more money off the back of it. Mm. So you're going against that grain, really. Mm. That's it. That's what I, that's what it feels like. Yeah, it's sad. Because I was like, here's a guy rocking up who's been in that prison, who's now turned his life around, who's delivering something that every inmate filled a f- feedback form for, said it's good. Three prison guards said it's good. The owner of the charity said it's good. And I'm doing it for free. And you don't want me in there. It's like, well, that's why you've got a ban on your prison. You know, it really frustrates me, you know, because um, I know there's companies operating in these prisons getting paid a lot of money. Oh, they're the friends of the politicians. They've yeah. got these contracts that's all it. over the country. Yeah, to deliver courses yeah. that are meant to rehabilitate. And the shit, aren't they? The and the courses? shit. Yeah. They don't rehabilitate at all. It's a shakedown on the taxpayers. Yeah. Yeah. That's it. So... You said you did this business that you didn't have to go to work for, but you got bored. People are going to be curious about what this business is. Is it, yeah, is sure. it retreats or is it workshops? No, no, no. Or? No, so when through my sobriety, I got into sales. And um, I basically, I had a friend of mine, there was a company I was working for doing sales and managing. When recession hit, they made loads of cuts. And I was like, what am I going to do? And my mate who I went to school with worked as an estate agent. And he was like, you'd be a good estate agent. And I remember at the time I was like, man, I can't be an estate agent. Don't you need to go to university to be an estate agent? Because in my mind, I thought anyone who wore a suit to work, you had to go to uni or something. Do you know what I mean? Just no one. People I grew up didn't even have a job. So let alone going to work in a suit. And I was like, you got to go uni to do that sort of job, in yeah? He was like, nah, mate, just come along. We'll get, we'll get you an interview. I reckon you can get in. Just be yourself. Because at that point, I was like, I think I was like five, six years sober. And I'd done the Tony Robbins course. I'd done all this other stuff. So I was pretty clued up. So what, anyway, I worked as an estate agent. Um, didn't really, I'd done really well at it, <clears throat> but didn't enjoy it. Because it was, the 12-step program from AA encourages you to be honest. Live an honest life. And some of the practices and some of the suggestions some of the people above me were making, I I couldn't do. I couldn't I couldn't tell you your house is worth a million if it's worth five hundred thousand. But that's what I was being asked to do. So you would sign on the dotted line and we'd get your property on. And you'll be tied into a twelve week contract. And so because of all of that, I left and then I was like, um a couple of clients who I worked with said I'd, we'd just like to deal with you. Can we just deal with you? And I was like, well, maybe I could set up my own estate agents then. And so that was it. It started off. I'm like, I'm going to set up my own estate agents. And so I, it's been going six years now. Um, and um, yeah, won, won the award for best estate agent, six years running. It's not like it's never, ever probably going to be a multi-million pound company. But we we give people an honest service. So if your house is worth half a million, we'll tell you your house worth half a million and you won't come back to us in six months moaning that we've overpriced it because that's what we've told you. But with that, you don't you don't have loads of properties, you know, because you're t- telling people the truth. But yeah, I mean, it's it's a great business and it pays me well and I have people there who I put systems in place into that business where you do this and out the other end comes profit. And that's all we done. We replicated that. So there's a system for every single little thing. I can look in and monitor every single system, fine tune it, and basically make every single system in your business idiot proof. 
like McDonald's. McDonald's is a multi-million pound company. When you go in there, there's not, you know, graduates from Oxford and Cambridge, is there? No. <laughs> Why? You know, because they've got systems in place for all of it. And so that's, you just replicate that in your own business. All right. Putting aside Tony Robbins and all the other stuff you learned. Yeah. Would you say that skills from the streets and hustling in and out of prison have helped you get you where you are today? Yeah, 100%. 100%, mate. Like, when I was out on the streets and I was, although I was a terrible drug dealer, I also was a good drug dealer if I didn't take it all because people like to deal with me because, yeah, I was a bit crazy, but I wasn't a bully. Do you know what I mean? And they liked to deal with me because I was nice and they'd they would they'd come and they'd get it and we'd sit down and we'd smoke some together and we'd have a chat. And it was all about that sort of like hustling mentality, building relationships, building connections and treating everyone the same. Um, and the grit and determination. So the grit and determination to keep going, keep grinding. When things got hard, and I think this is what happens, this is why so many new businesses close, is when things get hard, unless you've been through some tough stuff in your life, you'll probably quit. The thing is, when things got hard for me, it wasn't really hard in terms of what I'd been through. It was quite easy. So where other people were like, God, this is so hard, I'm going to quit. I was just like, this ain't fucking hard. I ain't quitting now, you know. And so, yeah, I just kept plowing on through. So definitely, if you apply everything you learn from the streets you, into business, you can you can do really well. You had a guy on here from, he was in San Quentin prison and he's become a successful business owner. So you've done some TV stuff. Mm -hmm. And what was the major thing that you did on TV? So when I was younger, I was in a TV show called Birds of a Feather. Um, back then, acting was almost like my drug. It was, I got to be this character who didn't have any problems who had a normal life and it became a, a means where I could escape I could be this character and just escape my reality and then when I took a step back from the business I've done other bits of acting that not a lot of people would know some short films that have won awards um, I played Jack the Ripper in a remake of his life um, interesting thing yeah for the travel channel um, so yeah there was some interesting stuff but the, I think the big thing was um, which screened in January was SAS Who Dares, Who Dares Wins on Channel 4 so I was a contestant on that show and um, and yeah it was um, it was a brutal experience how you see it on the telly is how it is it's really tough what do you have to do? so you imagine the SAS yeah Secret Air Service if you were to join that, that you have to go through a selection process which is basically f physical mental beasting and um, and they just take random civilians through it. And basically out of, I think it was about five, 7,000 applications, I got picked to be one of the 25. And so, yeah. And so I went on and, you know, it was, um, it was tough. I didn't, I didn't complete it. Aunt Middleton, who's like the sort of face of the show, took my armband off me, which is, uh, which is another sort of a thing where it probably wasn't, the right fit for the show because I think the producers looked on on paper and thought, yeah, ex-armed robber, assault on police, all these convictions. Let's let's keep pushing this guy and he'll probably crack and it'll make great TV. And so Ant Middleton, who was like the face of it, kept saying, you, number 11, you're fucking shit, you're a shit, you're a shit cunt. Yeah. All the, everything, he was like, you're fucking shit, screaming in my face and everything. What was the first challenge? Oh, mate, as soon as we, you literally, you're, dri you're driving along in a bus, it's, 
and it's you can download all this on Channel Four as well, by the way. And we'll put uh, a link in the description box. You yeah, 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 Michael yeah. It's all, it's all on Channel Four. Yeah. So, um, and yeah, that you just um, a big explosion goes off. And this get, is in this country. No, this is in Chile. You're in Chile. You're in Chile. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, 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 yeah. No, yeah. It's it's an English program. Twenty five. You've flown over to Chile. Yeah, they've flown over for film to it to be filmed in Chile. Is it hot though? No, it was freezing cold. Freezing. It was winter time. Okay. Yeah, and so yeah, a big explosion goes off. Dragged off the bus. <laughs> You're in the bus. You're on a bus. There's an explosion. Boom. And then guys with balaclavas. <laughs> Get off the fucking bus. Get off the fucking bus. Oh, I've got to watch this. And they're grabbing you. Get the fuck off. Kicking you up the ass and everything. Get the fuck off. You know, and then, and then they're like, you know, one of the SAS guys goes running up and they're like, you got to catch him. If you, if you don't catch him, you're fucking going home. And everyone's like, fuck. And they're pelting it. And this guy is like up the mountain, pelting it. And so we're all pelting after him, and it, he was just going and going and going and going again. As people stopping puking up, it was like <laughs> it was. It, it went on and on and on, and you know that is just that was like the first intro to it. That was like yeah. How many days of this did you do? It was it was about ten eleven days. The whole thing. I got halfway through it, so I got to day five, and um, oh, it was just brutal. It was brutal. What part was the most brutal for you? So it was a fighting scene. It was a fighting. And they knew this. The producers knew it. So the producers, when when they pulled me in, they said, what part of this will you struggle with? And they have a part of it where you have to fight. So they get you in a ring. They get you just in a makeshift ring. And you have to fight. But not like box. You have to lose your shit. Right? And you'd think with my record and everything, it'd be easy to do, wouldn't you? <laughs> yeah. You would. Yeah. yeah. Right. But I got sober at the age of 25. And the first thing I had to do was you. Okay. The first thing my sponsor said to me is, Michael, you cannot get violent anymore. So that is not an option anymore. Even road rage. Even if someone cuts you up, you cannot get out and punch them. Why? Because you'll end up getting sent back to prison. And if you get back, back in prison, your whole life's fucked. So what we need to work on is how you're going to manage your anger. And basically, it come back to breathing and communicating effectively. So how can I communicate with you effectively in the, so I don't have to punch you, <laughs> right? <laughs> and that was in my first six months of getting sober, right? And then I proceeded the next five years of that from day one being sober to five years sober, working on my anger. I go out to Chile I'm now 11 and a half years sober. Yeah, I'm in Chile, right? And Ant Middleton says to me, says to all of us, you need to go into your red mist and lose your shit, <laughs> right? And I was just like, I'm going to find this really hard because I haven't done it for so long. And also I teach other men on my retreats and when I go back in prison, techniques so they don't have to resort to violence, so they don't have to spend their lives in prison. So... A, I don't agree with this, and B, I can't do it anymore. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> and so um, it come to the fighting, and I got teamed up with a barrister, which would have made a great story. Barrister went to private school. Really, <laughs> you know, on paper you'd think, oh, Maisie's going to destroy this guy. <laughs> and it was the complete opposite, because <clears throat> although he, he'd had a very good upbringing, mm -hmm. very posh, he'd, he, he was bullied, and he was carrying a lot of anger about that. 
And so I was just sort of not really fighting and I, and I got beat out of every fight someone got beat but so I could use any technique to fight I was literally just sort of you know just like I wasn't even really trying to punch him I was literally just like <clears throat> I just want to get through this it's two minutes of just mental I just want to get through two minutes so I'm going to try and duck and weave but I'm not going to be going all out trying to swing he was going all he was like <laughs> like have you got gloves on or anything <laughs> we got gloves and face guard on and I was just like, t- I was just like taking it, taking it, taking it, just like. And that was in my my list of things. What before I went on the show, I was like, I'm not willing to do. You know, like I sat down with a friend of mine, and he said, "Is there anything you're not willing to do to win the show? Because there might come a moment." And I was like, "I'm not willing to go back and be that crazy lunatic I used to be, just so I can win this show." And so uh, when I went into that fight, I was like, "I don't care what they say." how shit he calls me how whatever he says i'm not gonna go back and be the guy i used to be and so anyway i lost this fight and um and straight after they lined us up on the parade square and they said if i call your number you're going home and they called and he called my and middleton called my number and i got sent home and i remember i went home on the plane back from chile and i was like fuck was that the right thing to do i was really questioning it in my mind even though i knew in my heart me not being that guy was a great success for me because it showed how much I've changed. It's like a test. Yeah, it's like a test to see, have you really changed? And so I proved to myself I had because when I got, he knocked me down three times, right, with these haymakers. When I got knocked down the first time, I was convinced I was like, the old Michael's going to go, ooh, <laughs> motherfucker, it's coming out now. And it didn't. He knocked me out and it, it, I got up the third time and I was like, I just got, I'm just going to ride this out. <clears throat> And I spent a lot of time doubting <coughs> whether I'd done the right thing and whether I should have let go of all that anger. And then the show aired in January of this year. And when the show aired, episode two, when this scene happens, Ant Middleton put a tweet on Twitter saying, the weak shall perish. Can't, no, something like, can't wait for this episode, the weak shall perish, right? And I was like, do you know how much strength... It took me to not be that guy. Do you know how many fucking years of work on myself it took me to not be that violent guy? And if that's weakness in your eyes, Ant Middleton, then then fine, mate. Do you know what I mean? I don't want to be strong in your eyes. Because for me, being that guy who batters another guy and loses his mind isn't strength for me. That's weakness for me. Is he just hyping for the show, this Ant Middleton guy? <sighs> Mike, you know, you go on this show and I think you have this idea in your head you're going to get to talk to the, the these guys like Ant Middleton. Ant Middleton didn't say one word to me. So he's ex-SAS. He's he? ex-SAS, yeah. And I've never, we've never spoke. We was on the show. I spent the best part of a week with him. Didn't speak once, apart from him screaming abuse in my face. Um, perhaps he needed to stay detached to do that maybe he did and I think that might be his role for the show but also I think um, you know when you put a tweet out like that I think you just need to be mindful of the consequences that that has on other people that are watching because if other young men are watching and they think okay strength is in physical strength not in mental and emotional strength then what are we what message are we sending and also, if I'm made to be look like someone who's weak, 
then why should this guy who's locked up for violent crimes change? If I've changed and I'm viewed as weak, then they're going to be thinking, well, fuck that, I ain't changing. So you see what I mean? It's yeah, like, totally. You just got to be mindful when you're in that public eye, which I don't think he does. And that's, you know, that, that that's his prerogative. You know. Sometimes the media give the wrong messages just to get viewers and create hype. Yeah. But you're ideally placed to give young people who perhaps are in similar experiences now that you are in who are watching this some advice. What would that be? My advice would be is that you've got unlimited potential within you. You've got so much fucking potential that you don't even fucking know. Like seriously, if you've gone through difficulty in life, you're you're equipped in a way that most people aren't equipped to handle tough moments. If you can apply that to your own business, you can be really successful. So that would be my advice. My advice is this, go and pick an industry where you think I could, I'd like to run my own business in this industry. Go and work for the biggest, most successful company in that industry. And whilst you're there, look at, A, look at the systems they have and B, look at all the stuff they're doing wrong. Look at all the stuff where you think that, I think we could do that better. And then, when you've done that, go and set up your own company and everything they're doing wrong, you do right. And when things get hard, use that street mentality to push on through. Where other people would quit, you fucking keep going and keep going and keep going. And eventually you'll get to a point, if you get also mentors along the way are very important. If anyone wants advice from me, reach out to me on Instagram. I'm happy to give that free of charge. Um, and just just go and achieve your goals. Honestly, man, like it's all out there for the taking. Your biggest competition is that man looking back at you in the mirror. I think that's one of the wisest conclusions to any of these podcasts that we've done. So how can people find you on socials? I'll, yeah. put, I'll put all the links in the description yeah. box. So but. Instagram, Twitter, Facebook. My username is at Mr. Maisie, M-I-S-T-E-R-M-A-I-S-E-Y, Mr. Maisie. Um, I got a men's retreat I hold in Devon. Welcome to come along to that. I set up a free online program for people who are trying to overcome any form of addiction. You can find that by the link in my bio. Um, my book, Young Offender, as well. Um, yeah, man, just reach out. If you're struggling, just reach out and talk. I'm really active on my DMs. Like, if you want want to talk or any advice, DM me on Insta and we'll talk. And if you want a signed copy of Michael's book, I've got five. So whichever comment gets the most likes under this video, we will send you one of these in the mail, wherever you are in the world. So it's absolutely brilliant. I've almost finished it. All right, Michael. Thanks nice for coming one, on, man. Thanks, Thanks buddy. Appreciate it, bro. Yeah, brilliant. Nice yeah. one, mate. Wish nice you all one. the best, man. Yeah, yeah. cheers, man. Really Thanks good. for having me on. Yeah. Thanks.